0: This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, which is now more than a conference. It's also a video podcast where AEC industry software developers take us behind the scenes and share their design and decision-making process to show how they made the tools we all use to design the built environment. It's available on YouTube and Spotify. Follow the link in the show notes and subscribe today. Everyone in this industry, because of
1: 20 years of indoctrination, doesn't really fully understand the impact of what's coming because it's so different.
0: Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. A bit of housekeeping before introducing this episode. The Troxel Podcast and YouTube show are made possible by sponsorships, and I still have sponsorship slots open right now. If you'd like to get your product or service in front of this incredible, industry-changing and forward-thinking AEC tech audience, please visit trxl.co slash sponsor to learn more and get in touch with me. And for you listeners, did you know that there's also an ad-free version of this show? You can support me directly by becoming a member. To learn more about membership, please visit trxl.co and click on one of the many subscribe buttons on the site, which will show you the details of what's included. There are a lot of things that I want to be able to do with Troxel, and that can only happen with your support through sponsorships and memberships. Okay. Picking up where we left off in the last episode, I'm pleased to release the second half of my marathon conversation with Martin Day of X3D Media, AEC Magazine, and the annual Next Build and Next Dev events. Martin's a busy guy. So if you missed the last episode, you should pause here and go back to episode 133 before picking this one up. And like I said in the intro to the last episode, upon re-listening to this entire conversation, My belief was once again reinforced that podcasting is the perfect medium for this kind of long-form conversation to be captured and shared with everyone in the industry, which is exactly why I do this. In this part of the conversation, we delve into the disruptive impact of AI on architecture, Autodesk's response to the open letters, software licensing, open standards, pros and cons of AEC's shift to the cloud. The importance of BIM 2.0, challenges with technology moving too fast, prefab construction, the future of 2D drafting, challenges faced by software developers in the AEC space, the importance of customers being included during the software development cycle, digital twins, the problem with hype cycles in AEC tech, the future of Martin's Next Build and Next Dev conferences, and other topics. Similarly to part one, many more companies and products were mentioned in this episode, including Autodesk Revit, Graphisoft Archicad, Swap, Caterra, Cope AI, Dassault Systems Catia, Autodesk Inventor, Hypar, Autodesk Tandem, Autodesk Forge, Bentley MicroStation, TwinView, Archibus, Trimble SketchUp, and BricsCAD. So, fill out your bingo cards. I hope you enjoy the remainder of this conversation. And without further ado, I bring you Martin Day.
1: A VC lady contacted me before we ran. I had a conversation with her and it was pretty clear that maybe she didn't really know that much um, about the industry and was kind of learning. And so we had a half an hour call, Norah came out of it. And then she contacted me after dev and just said, Okay, we sorted. We're looking for firms that can remove architects. And I'm like, What? That there isn't one piece of software that was demoed anywhere that can remove an architect. There is no such thing. You're still gonna need people who've got indemnity. But you still need people to check everything. There is no way you can remove that entire there might be fewer of them, but it's not necessarily Oh, so this is, this is the kind of the, the next kind of set of conceptual problems that we're going to be facing is the VCs are going to be looking to knock out part of the industry because they think yeah. that it's possible with AI. Yeah. So in
0: that industry, we can get rid of the lawyers. In that industry, we can get rid of the doctors. Everybody wants to get rid of somebody. The architects want to get rid of the plan checkers, right? It, as <laughs> an example. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, all, you know, and and then with AI, everyone's thinking, "Oh my God, I, they're going to steal my designs." But at the same point, all the same companies are talking to me saying, "What we really want is an internal AI that learns from our designs, so that we can yeah. get rid of our people. We get rid of our people, not other people get rid of us." And I'm like, <laughs> wow. "Wow!" So everyone's everyone's going to AI each other. It's, it's just like these big huge whacking sticks. At some point, right. I think at that point it becomes very difficult to predict the future, because what what it gets settled upon is nothing that we can possibly imagine at the moment. I, I've I've always used these in presentations where someone once the, the car engine came along, and someone or the steam engine, um someone designed the next generation of travel contraption, and it was a wagon with a Horse with an engine in it. That whole kind of, I can't. I I know the future is changing, but I, I can't change that much. So I'm just going right. to use all my old reference points to Frank predict the future. Yeah. I, I I were at that point where there's there's so many things that could happen. Um, and I, it was interesting that Andrew Agnos went from uh, at AU. He'd be saying things like uh, faster, faster. Uh, Less, less people. Yeah, three, three words. Less, less with more, or something like that. Which a lot of people took really badly because they just thought that they were he was doing them out of a job, and that wasn't what he intended at all. Um, he was just talking about being able to do more, more projects, but with the same people, whatever. Then the next year he started talking about AI and just said AI, any new technology that's come along has always created more jobs than uh it, it hasn't and then, uh, and then this year uh, uh he was uh, I don't necessarily hey you but later th- through this year he's kind of ch- he changed his pitch a little bit to say he's not he's, he's this is on CNN or something on the business he said something like we're not saying it's not going to get rid of jobs but we're just kind of saying that it's going to alter the way that you do your job maybe more efficiently or whatever and I think even he, he, yeah, I'm just quite a big thinker, and I think that he, even he's kind of changing his tone, um, because it's happening so much quicker than we thought, and not it's in the way that we thought. And it's painful in in trying to keep up with it. And so when you see somebody like Tim Fu, um, so everybody's kind like doing this stuff, and I saw Tim Fu video of him doing stuff, I was like, oh shit, this is like, He's completely symbiotically connected to this stuff, where he can just model it with him. He's so good at what he does. Um, you know, you're going to have these individuals who are symbiotic with 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 the technology, and it just acts as a perfect uh, um, a perfect input suggestion. You know, here's a menu, here's a serving suggestion, and then he can model it, and then he can make make the changes to it. There are going to be people who can do that, who are going to be augmented. Um, cause they're so very skillful, basically. I, I always try to watch Andrew as a bellwether for, for what he thinks. And it's definitely gone a little bit more pointy that this stuff is going to make some, some considerable changes. There's a brilliant documentary, uh, called Capital in the 21st Century. If you've not watched it, um, hmm. uh, it's available. You can rent it on Apple and uh, it's a book but it's they've made it into a documentary but it, it talks about it starts off by saying in the 18th century if you were rich uh your parents owned land and the chances of anyone getting rich and owning land were very slim and so it was a heritocracy. then we had the 50s world war II. then we had kind of riches for the masses for the for the for the, the um middle class you know, middle class can afford houses and all these things for their houses and all the gadgets and stuff like that. And then suddenly today we're in this weird world where it's turning into a heritocracy again because kids can't afford to save money to buy a house and right. uh, they're relying on their parents owning a house to help them buy a house, you know what I mean? so, so I don't know, this has got very little to do with the with scenes. <laughs> so that was that was that's the the, the documentary start point. But sort of three quarters of the way through, they start talking about AI. And this guy just says, in the Industrial Revolution, we had lots of horses. We had lots of horses. Horses, horses everywhere. Once we had the steam engine, we didn't have any horses. Horses became an expensive thing as a pleasure that you had. They weren't work horses. And he said that uh, he then went on to go, AI... This is the first time that we've invented something that actually replaces humans. In this scenario, humans are the horses. He said 50% of all jobs, in the, I don't know if he was in the state he was in or if he was talking about the states, are driving jobs. In 10 years' time, all of those jobs are going to be massively under threat with automated driving. Taxis, mm-hmm. lorries, you name it. Mm-hmm. What are these people going to do? And that's going to happen worldwide. And that's going to well in the West, where they can afford... The, the the infrastructure and the the, the costs, and that's, that's very sobering when you sit there and think, yeah, there is some. We all try and think, oh my god, they're going after lawyers and doctors, but if these menial tasks, for these these like driving jobs, it's that's huge in itself. That alone, right. you know, right. uh, shops and all the other kind of things that will happen, and it's going to creep up on our societies quicker than we've
0: ever had to deal with anything like this before. I think one of the things that this, you've talked about this event really like becoming a spark. And I think what I'm interested in now is momentum, right? Because obviously there's people working in firms who this, their job is to figure out what's next. And that is a new job when it comes to technology, I think. Mm -hmm. especially, especially framing it this way, which is we want to dictate what we need the technology to do for us rather than just be somebody that the technology provider will come tap every so often. Right. It's kind of flipping the table there. And, and so now there's going to be more emphasis on this and I guess I'm just interested. You're talking about the next year's conference. You're talking about like what's going to, like it is going to grow. It is going to change. But building on what was presented this year, and I think such an important inflection point in the industry, right? It's this, the word is out. People are interested. You're talking about how many people are honing in on watching these videos. I, I wonder how many people are actually reading this, the new standard that's being developed, right? In the open. Yeah. And, and I would imagine there's a lot of attention there, but how do we maintain that momentum? What are you doing at AEC Mag? You know, to to really help, because you're you're the one who's kind of wrangled this whole thing together and created the platform for this to to just happen. Not that not that you own it but or offer bits, it or anything, but but yeah, it's a, how,
1: how do we maintain that? So the the bits were there. All I did was um, extend next build really um, by an extra day and just invite a slightly different audience. And right. as you as you said, kind of. Do it the other way around. I want to get the industry to tell the software developers where their pain points are and what they need. And the moment I'm fed up of seeing software companies make up an idea, um, maybe get it checked by a small number of, of their customers, their pet customers, who might not necessarily be the, <clears throat> the best customers, go to people who who don't want your stuff, uh, people who don't who feel they don't want to buy any more software, and then you know if they actually if you actually prove, prove those people right that they want, they want this technology, then you've got a shortfire winner um and I kind of think of the, with the with the event um, as it was, it kind of came predominantly from an architectural side, but they were doing all the work <clears throat> people were taking the piss out of the open letter group, but I actually did do some stuff that Autodesk did make changes to its licensing. People did get access to more past versions of the software. Um, they did delay the net, end of network licenses for a while. There was a, there was a bunch of things that were that were beneficial to everybody. But um, we need to get construction and other disciplines on board, and we need to have those conversations. Um, and they're happening. Um, it's not necessarily through me it's it's, it's the open air group and the, and Aaron and Andy having conversations with fans who who really like he hear more and then you 've got Greg schlesner with what he 's doing with Magnetar and and strange matter that he 's working with his group so that there's actual development going on there so so I think those those are kind of the core. Cool Elements of it at the moment, but to go to the next stage, I think we need to see software and and proof of concepts that this stuff actually works, is possible to get there, and we need to see working in open standards and we need to see more more people on board with open openness and more software vendors you know I, part of me doesn't want to believe all this because I just I just you know, I doubt. Always doubt first, but I, I I have had so many conversations with so many people at this. I do fundamentally believe that there are people there who who do think that they want to have a a crack at being open, open APIs, open file formats. We're seeing it with USD, though it's not necessarily the same thing. The unified um, database that they're doing isn't going to be open, but um, the APIs allegedly will be. I mean, there is movement towards a, a little bit more than voices, and we're going to see some software. Um, but I think for for the for the event, I've got to keep finding new firms that are doing interesting things so that that they're adding to it. We've got to dig deeper into this AI question, um, really um, beyond you know, I kind of see swap, but I just, it just seems so much like um, a parlor trick. I mean, it just is, it's like, how is this working? This just seems insane. And I know that there are some firms in London that are trying it and piloting it. And I know that there's a lot more work than, than, you know, oh, we'll just all the drawings of the AI knows that it's, there is a lot of standardization that you have to try and tell it before it goes. So uh, I don't, Major signature architects are reaching out to them, even though the buildings that they themselves admit that they're looking at are very basically rectangles that are right, you know, yeah, boring uh, architecture, but it's going to come. Um, got to start then, somewhere, Yeah, it's, it will grow, it's going to start somewhere. And yeah, you know, the I'm expecting to see more of more people do that kind of stuff. The interesting thing is that historically, what would have happened if we had a new Group of software tools coming to the market. There'd be plugins for Revit. These things aren't plugins for Revit. Nearly all of them are standalone cloud apps that will plug into Revit through APIs or through Bit 360 or or whatever. And this is kind of a like change. So suddenly we're not seeing in the tech stack world where you'd have kind of like the the foundation product and all the things plugging into like a porcupine and all the crap happening inside the software on your desktop. This is, this is a new world, and all this stuff is in the cloud, and you're going to start sending your data, whether it be a model into the, into the cloud to get all your TD drawings back. Um, it might happen seamlessly. You don't know what's going on. It's just, mm-hmm. You press a button, and all the APIs are talking about themselves, to themselves, and then you get your, uh, you yeah, it's ready. Here's your, your document set. Um, we'll have to have AIs to check the AIs. Because the one thing that's setting out the drawings, you're always going to need to have another set of eyeballs on something. And the way that an AI is programmed or trained, you want to have an AI that's got some slightly different training and some slightly different inputs to look at the the outputs. You you can't have the same piece of AI that created it, checking it. So you're going to need that. I mean, data sets for AI are going to be incredibly painful because... Nobody, I don't think, has ever produced one hundred percent free documentation, one hundred percent correct documentation, Um, and that's why a lot of firms want to be in control of training their own AI, so that it's their own fault if it does that. But it's it's also they're in control of retraining it when it goes wrong, you know. So as opposed to this global AI presence of what ISO drawings should should look like, and every architect has their own idea about what the documentation should or shouldn't look like. So um the, the good thing is the people who come to the show to typically have a pretty good grasp on on the fact that change is constant, but we're we're heading for something this is why BIM 2.0 point is so important in my discussion, even though I mean I got to the slide in my talk and I was like, oh God, it's a whole lot of words. And um <laughs> it's yeah, you can read it, but the, this is so important because we're not getting a next generation of the leading tool, and I, you know for all the reasons the arugnosa stated, I completely agree with him. That he doesn't want to design a faster car. Yeah, that. Uh, he, but there are people developing faster cars, so there and there is going to be a group of people who who will gravitate towards. Revit as it is, but in a different form that's faster that can handle stuff. There are going to be in that bottom segment. That's that's what they've trained to do. That's what they know. That's where they want to be. And I think you're going to. There is going to be some fracturing there where people will gravitate towards that. But I think that this the capabilities that you're going to be able to lock into on a cloud-based AI system are going to be so compelling because you're going to have productivity benefits that they haven't dreamt of. Um, but it doesn't mean that doing some projects in Tudy or in BIM, or traditional BIM, isn't the right way to go about it. Maybe it's not a big amount of effort, but yeah. for big complex projects where you have lots of people working together and you need constant checking. I mean, you know, there's lots of complication and there's analysis and there's all this stuff going on. Um, then that's the way it's going to go. But again, people are going to be tempted to go to a one-size-fits-all shopping center of fun as opposed to pick the best image. And I I think the whole database concept that Greg's come up with and uh, is promoting is about having that ability where, as I've said before, we're we're no longer writing apps on top of the, the design system. They're going to be sat in the cloud. Well, if we're now also taking an abstract and taking all of a project's data and putting that in a data lake, the applications can sit in the cloud and sit on top of that data. Or and they're not sort of really sat on top of the data; they're just like called in through APIs. So suddenly, you've kind of leveled the playing field, and you've eliminated this problem of this bottleneck of this old bit of software that's quite slow that has a, a kind of limited API has a limited capability of expressing the geometry that you want to do or containing the knowledge that you want to keep inside of it it's going to be' it's mind expanding that the idea is this market is moving from a very constrained old based system to something which is going to be unlimited unlimited cap- capabilities not just for more just knows it can't produce everything. So you, I I'm sure they don't mind all these startups having their cloud applications where p- plugging into their APIs. I mean, it's, it's as good for them as, as having it plugged into Revit because wherever the data goes, Autodesk wants to own it or wants to contain it. That's, uh, that's, they want to own the network. There's always the thing is owning the network is better than owning the one application uh, I'm sure, sure Autodesk will buy other applications, other tools, and you would be able to do whatever. Maybe, if, maybe, you know, Autodesk will start licensing its cloud unit system. So, you know, you could be, you don't, Autodesk don't have to buy you, but they can actually take care of the transaction for you in their network mm. where you can, because that's always a pain in the backside. Yeah. You know, that would be a danger, I would say, to also having, You know, um, having the order test be the dollar, if you know, for the industry, the standard. But everyone in this industry, because of twenty years of indoctrination, doesn't really fully understand the impact of what's coming because it's so different. And this is the this is the thing that I'm trying to get across in the magazine. Uh, Whenever I, you know, hear people kind of like saying, "Oh, he's reven dead," or it just makes me laugh that that is even a the, the consideration that needs needs to be discussed, um, because I'm, I'm I'm five to ten years out in my head, um, and I'm talking to these guys who also have a very uh, non-product sense They have products, but their products are more services than their products. It's, it's okay. a, a that's the other thing you've got to change your your mindset around. But they all want to do subscription. You know, it's all it's all going to be. How is all this stuff going to get costed out for projects? Um, just simple things. I remember asking Graphisoft. So Graphisoft introduced this very uh, internal. Um, it was called it was called Everest, and it was uh, that was the code name. And it was sort of like a new pipeline for data. And it was they used it to get data from. MuffyCAD to then own in house, never check, um, structural engineering programs. So it meant that the architect and the structural engineer pretty much always had it were in sync. And so you could say, so hey, I've just changed the model, structural engineer will go, oh, I'll just have a look at it. Yeah, you can do that, that's fine. And it's it's kind of simultaneous uh access. But the thing yeah, I was the all I was convinced was like, so this is really great in terms of productivity because architect can make every change and they can check it with a structural engineer. But that isn't the way it works. It, it, it's mm. well, it, you see, expect the structural engineer to, to actually stop doing what he's doing on something else and come and check your one change uh, on your model, say yeah, it's okay, and then go back to something else. It, the, the transactions just don't work like that. And while you can introduce a technology that seemingly increases productivity, And gets this kind of almost like they're working under your own roof. That is the, that that isn't how things can work. No. Give me all your changes and two weeks I'll have a look. I don't, I don't want to see the fact that you've altered the slab today.
0: Well, not only that, but when you're doing the process, you break stuff because you have to, and you don't need everybody to be commenting on the stuff you know you broke until you put it back together again. (laughs) Right. <laughs> there, there is a
1: natural cycle. There is a natural time between changes and oversight that I, I just don't think. I, I, and this is I, again, this is another thing. I was talking to somebody, uh, so they were telling me that they they really went they went from being kind of like BIM BIM users to let's do this sort of DP. What's the Americans say it a lot as well? Yeah,
0: it's integrated project delivery IPD IPD.
1: Yeah, which was kind of like yeah, that's interesting. No, the the, the, the software room. requires us to change the way we work. That, that's a bit of an issue. So um, I saw to this guy and he said, "Well, we we got everyone together. and We were like gang gangbusters on this project, and we we're like, yeah, we were absolutely nailing it. Uh, we we put the design cycle all down. We had the MEP, structural, and uh, the architect all in the same space." We got to it. We went to the to the to the client. The client went, love it, go with it. Off they go. They would ordered the steel to be cut. Two months later, the client comes back. I want an atrium. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of like, yeah. It's kind of, Are we going to get to a point where the the, the AI designs a building so quickly that the client doesn't have time to even digest the design? enough to dwell on it to want to actually not have other ideas i mean they're bad enough as it is but
0: this episode is made possible with support from avail what's one of the most painful aspects of working in revit today well we all know that as a revit project grows over time navigating the information in that project becomes ever more taxing and when more than one person is working on a project a new wave of challenges arise It only gets more difficult throughout the life of a project. Good news, a huge update to Avail Desktop was just released. Version 4.5 introduces several powerful new features designed to improve organizing, searching, and finding information within Avail. New features include channel groups, application mappings, and scope searches. But that's not all. Let's talk about the all-new Project Navigator, a powerful new feature in Avail for Revit 5.1 that extends Revit's native project browser to help navigate the dense information you're forced to endure as your projects grow. For the first time, Avail will connect your active project to your standard library with one unified search box. With Project Navigator, you can easily switch between active projects, see recently viewed Revit elements, search across all Revit project elements, yes, all of them, conveniently search Avail with one click, filter by all the different element types, Navigate to Sheets and Views, Legends and Schedules. View individual elements contained on Sheets and navigate to them. View family types, and more importantly, actually drag and drop them right into your project. View instances of each family type currently being used in the model, and more. To read all about the new features and see a video of them in action, visit getavail.com. There you'll find a Features pull-down menu And you can look at all of the different features, including the new Project Navigator. Once again, that's getavail.com and look in the bar across the top for that features pull-down menu. Thank you to Avail for supporting this episode of Troxel. It opens up a whole other set of problems because, I mean, clients don't speak the building vocabulary as it is. They don't speak plans. They don't speak elevations. They don't speak sections. And so therefore, you know, we always default back to renderings and now real time rendering and sometimes VR and, you know, more visual ways to communicate. But to your point about digesting, like we speak fluent buildings. That's what we do. We're industry professionals. They don't do that maybe once a decade. You know, it's like, how often does that happen? And so, yeah, there there's there's other bottlenecks that this is going to just put on a pedestal. And
1: it's not that it's being unique to AI. So that was that was a alone AI with it designing it in 40 minutes or have a line, right. like, let's say let's say just be generous and have a week with all the drawings. And the guy goes, yeah, find out. we're going to order the metal because um, the next thing is that all the metal have been cut for this building, so they have to you know, trash it all. But it's, I remember going to, I went to Berlin, so the Reichstag building had been completely stripped back and... I had a fantastic opportunity to walk around the Reichstag with Foster and Partners to have a look at the, the, you know, you could see the burn marks from Hitler. You could see all the bullet holes and all the um, the um Russian um graffiti that was, you know, well hidden up in the building. And they said, so they'd won this competition. Foster and Partners had won a competition to rebuild the Reichstag. The building went in they won the competition. They then went off and did all the detailed drawings, were progressing down towards, you know, obviously this is, we're going to be building this. And then the parliament, the German parliament, took a vote to see if they wanted to add a dome to the building. And they did. So then the entire design changed, change, even the one that they'd won. And I, you know, clients changed their mind and, and, and are fluid. And uh, I think even to this day, Fostering partners always try and keep the projects in Rhino for as long as possible in face of any sudden changes mm-hmm. that are required before they go into drawings. But um, I've come across, across this far too often. For, for the, technology is definitely going to challenge our process, our capability to rationalize what this means. and And for clients, it's going to be the same. They, they need time to digest whatever it is you're putting in front of them, and they're going to want to dwell on it. And compressed uh, design and fabrication timelines doesn't really work. If you know, I think there's going to be a, a kind of a, a, the limitation is going to be in the decision making of the client as to the time as to the timeline, as opposed and, to, well, God, we're waiting for all this stuff to get done. Um, but from, a, just...
0: from an architectural design standpoint, that can be backfilled with more projects. I mean, I, th- I feel like, yeah, you can still mm-hmm. allow a client to sit with something for a while and you're doing a bunch of other stuff, especially if it's been compressed down to 40 minutes like you're talking about. And, and what I would actually hope is, is that, and this is a theory that I've just kind of been bouncing around in my head, but could this lead to architecture costing less to produce and and that doesn't need to spell the end for the architect. If the architect can do more for less and we can build more architecture like real architecture not, not just dumb rectangles I think yeah. that there are particularly benefits there but is anybody ready for any of that because it is a total paradigm shift in the way that everybody works.
1: I think there's a finite number of individuals who want those kind of jobs and Yes, there are too few architects at the moment, but architects plus AI will more than meet that need. The issue then will be why should someone pick you over someone else if architects are so too a penny i mean and and how many buildings are you never going to get to build because you never have you know, you still be you you're gonna have most most architectural practices will have um Sort of like what uh, this? Um, it's going to be you're going to be giving a pair of goggles to your clients see the buildings you've designed but never built. Uh, mm-hmm. it, the buildings you've designed to one to one detail are ready for fabrication that were never built because you could, and that's what the technology allowed you to do. I don't know. I think there's um, yes, there's the potential, always the potential for uh, doing more work. And the question is, what you're into and what level you're doing. If that means you can do more garages and more house extensions, I don't, I don't think that's. If you're a, a mid-sized practice and it means that you can be doing more uh, office buildings, I don't think we're going to need office buildings. Um, so might be more hotels, more free time. But then you have to look at what rectangles. I think I think the biggest change is going to be in boring buildings that get reproduced time and time again um i think if somebody somebody at some point is going to come up with the Mm -hmm. the volkswagen beetle of houses and Mm -hmm. everyone's going to want one and Mm -hmm. uh that's when you get interesting because then you can have a factory you can't really have a factory for much else if you're making rectangular boxes that ship the volumetric that ship on the back of a lorry and get hoisted into make a rectangular, uh, short-term building or whatever. Okay, fine. Um, the thing that worries me is the quality of the materials and how long those buildings are going to last for. Are they really greener if you're ripping down a building after 20 years? So no. the thing that worried me the most. Somewhere else, I did a bit of one of my summer researches was looking at the prefabrication volumetric market in Japan. Most houses outside of Tokyo are prefabs. And in Japan, house prices go down over time. The land stays the same value, but the value of the building... Japanese people do not look after those buildings because they don't think there's any need to because it's going to get ripped down. You go and you buy a house, you expect to rip that house down and put a new one up on it. This oh. worries me about... um Modern construction, or whatever you want to call it, is that we're going to end up building houses that, hopefully, they'll be greener. Maybe even if you rip the dam after twenty-five years, the materials will just be in a carbon sink somewhere. But um, everyone I've talked to who's got these kind sort of um, off-site fabrication plants and building things, they'll give you a ten-year warranty on it, and that's it. I mean, this is not. This is. In the UK, um, modular has a bad name and prefab has a bad name. It kind of makes you think that it might be sort of like temporary. Um, uh, we have a that's kind of a hangover from the war where we built a whole load of temporary houses which were still being used twenty years ago, up to twenty years ago. Um and so yeah, what all it's gonna take is for some of these houses to get sold and then in ten years' time they will get a bad name for themselves. And then people aren't going to want them. And yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah house, housing decisions and housing—I think it's very quick to to swap to uh, volumetric. But then, it, if if it goes wrong and it goes wrong widely, then you know you're talking about a lot of people with a lot of mortgage pain on a house that. So we don't really have many timber frame houses in the UK. I'm always amazed in the states. Timber frame houses. You build your houses from the inside out. In the UK and Europe, we build our houses from the outside in. We do the outside first, wait for it to, the, to dry off, then go in and do the finish. In America, it's all stick frame. Timber frame in the UK. If you want a mortgage for timber frame, it's in the same section as Japanese knotweed, subsidence, and listed buildings. It's mm. it's deemed to be a non-standard uh, 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 construction methodology. And so it, it's harder to get a mortgage for a timber frame building than one of brick and block. Um, so we've got, we've got some intriguing uh, issues to deal with. Same with Germany, where most Germans want to have a house made of stone. They don't want to have a, a timber frame. Hand. uh, Switzerland are much more kind of wood centric, not the Nordics are. So it's a different kind of space. We had Grenfell catch fire. So, we got very scared about wood so we had you know this wonderful material compressed laminate uh, which was banned from being used on the outside of buildings so that suddenly changed you know what what we could do with it we can't we couldn't run in the whole kind of like mass timber movement um and i just think that there's there's a you know this materials and, and off-site construction and how we make how we make changes and appetites for that, and then long term long term issues. If if these things don't work, and if they're renowned for failure, then uh, I'm just looking at the Japanese context of it. That the Japanese, you know, you see these beautiful Japanese buildings that are 2,000 years old or whatever, and they oh my god, it's been out of wood and it's stood the test of time. But their modern day housing is is deemed as uh, disposable. Uh, and yeah, so, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm the Japanese, a Japanese firm invested really heavily in uh, one of the kind of prefab startups here, which was, it was a really good uh, modern architectural practice that did a lot of refurb work, but they set up a fab shop and uh, they went out of business within 18 months. Um, uh, a lot of people don't quite know how to do how this works. But it's worth having that, looking at that debate the next day where you've got um, Bruce from Facet Hounds. Bruce is brilliant. He's been making uh, off-site construction wood houses for 15-plus years. He knows what he's doing. Um, and then we had someone from uh, um, we had Richard Harper, He used to be at Catero. Um, so we had Charlie from DPR. And then there was Oliver from Cope AI. Cope Cope AI uh, got a very interesting software technology, which kind of you're designing something, they'll find you a fabricator to try and design, to try and build that in a modular way. Um, But that conversation is, is gold dust because you've got, you've got people who know about failure and you've got someone who's, who's getting it done and someone who's trying to, Sell a, a middle platform to the industry to try and connect customers with fabricators. Um, but it's, yeah, um, my excitement, I, I was massively into offsite construction and, um, and then they all started failing. Uh, and it was every couple of months one would go bust. And then uh, Barclay Homes was my one great hope who'd set up a big, um, because they they were their own customer, they make their own houses, and then I think uh, again huge losses. They didn't they weren't really talking about what they were doing, and when that whole thing goes dark, he just sat there going, "This isn't looking good." Um, but it might be British thing, it might be American, um, Poland, and Italy have some thriving offsite construction uh, market, maybe also. Yeah, it's actually Israel. I know Israel are doing, the, the Israeli Defense Force are doing uh, quite a lot in that as well. Um, but yeah, there's a big market. Someone's going to nail it with something, but it's all these. All this money's been poured into That's the thing. There's been money in construction's been poured into the kind of like project planning, project maintenance, all construction and uh, offsite construction. And the offsite construction seems to be a very bad bet. Um, mm-hmm. thinking about all the money that could have been spent on software development that went into, uh, the, the toilet and that. Well, I mean, right. was two billion, I think, wasn't it? It was uh, yeah, it was pain, painful. Um, yeah. was, my favorite little story with that. I went over to Las Vegas for a, for a, an event where Katera were, and, um, I met Michael Marks and they were showing me. What well, they were building, and he was showing me around, he goes, "Oh, see the light bulbs in this building well, yeah own yeah. I, I, we own the company that does that and I'm like, what he he wanted to own the entire the entire chain of everything, and it was there was a special light bulb company that did the they weren't just light bulbs, they were light bulbs plus Wi-fi, so they were using the the power grid of the building plus the light bulbs to somehow transmit Wi-fi. Um, the the thing that or just flawed, absolutely floored me was they were shipping buildings from Utah, no, from uh, Arizona to Utah, and when they arrived in Utah and were sort of like fabricated put in place, the building's code inspector would go around to the building and then rip the front of the, of the interior wall off because they needed to know that the electrical and the pipework that was already built in the factory was built to code. To Utah's code, not to Arizona's code. So every place these things were shipped. It's, it's the equivalent of you buying a Ford and driving from one state to the next one and saying, stop, we've got to check the wiring loom on your car because it might not conform right. to our standards.
0: And... Welcome to California. <laughs> yeah, that's what they do with the smog equipment. Yeah, I'm Really? Oh, sure i sure of it. Oh, yeah. But they, but they were doing it with buildings. And I just thought, this is just
1: stupid. And um, talking to other people, oh, lo and behold, in Australia, it's exactly the same thing. So volumetric buildings were being built in, in China, they were being shipped to the, um, Australia. And this company had to install video cameras on the assembly lines so that every single one could watch the uh, wiring and the plumbing be installed. And they got That's some kind good. of special deal where, as long as they could you know, see that that was matched the barcode or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. then they would, wouldn't rip it apart. Um, wow. but that, that, that kind of almost killed my love of, uh, kind of, offsite construction because you suddenly oh, yeah. realize that, First that game. it's just not geared up. For, we're not geared up for it. We had these stupid rules or they That's were great. not stupid. They're not stupid for what they are, but in a modern twist, they actually mean you actually cause destruction to the thing you just built. Um, right. and, and in the UK, we, really, we don't really have that per se, but what we have is British people like stone. And so if you're going to have a uh, 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 offsite construction, if it is timber, then you're probably going to have to clad it in something that looks like stone. Or you're going to have to have some kind of like metal aluminium for salad, which is holding all the stuff, you know, and thinners. Uh, and yeah. eventually that stuff's going to wear off at some point. Um, right. So, I'm, yeah. I'm, it's cheap. Yeah. It's cheap. It's and this cheap. is, I, I don't like the idea of people doing off site construction to make cheap. And there is always going to be the, one of the targets is, is to do it faster mm-hmm. with less expensive materials. And um so yeah, you won't be finding me buying a modular house. Uh, uh not yet. Not yet, no. Right. We we need to do some thinking about right. it. Um but yeah. 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 So yeah. That that was another another key point. Well, for there's, the,
0: so, there's so there's so many things pulling at this industry. I mean, it is uh, it's a miracle that anything happens at all. That's come up quite a few times on the podcast. It's just how, how do things actually get built? How do we actually get stuff built? And it's uh, it is incredible. And yet here we are. Um, the struggle is real. I know, but the, the, th- sometimes, sometimes the technology
1: helps and sometimes it just gets in the way. And sometimes the methodology that we instill in, uh, in in the company and the workflow, does it? It just doesn't suit. It suit every single project. Yeah, this is the one hammer that you've got that you go and do. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm starting to think that 2D
0: wasn't so bad. And in some, <laughs> yeah. instance, in some, in some instances, that's long good back. enough. Yeah, oh. go back to yeah. I I long for the days where it was that simple. Right? It's like thinking about. The, the 50s, and it's just like, man, they, they had great. They, they just had it so good they didn't even know. And, and look what progress has brought us. Now you've got to think about every single wall, uh, wall uh, element, uh, and
1: having model the walls correctly with enough elements right. in them. Right. Um, and it, it's it. I I do believe that BIM, as it's in, even as it's in the best way of of. Of implementing it and running it does produce some inefficiency to other workflows, other traditional workflows, and sometimes you, I think you need to choose which projects deserve, you know. So, so TechZamo's, for instance, Zamo's has um, uh, Katia, so they have every bit of software under the sun, but they have Katia. The Katia is Dassault System software is used to design Boeings, Ferraris, cars, um, satellites. It can handle really large models. It can also handle really large, complex models and it can spin them around in real time. It's, it's the, it's one of the top end systems. Mm -hmm. And the thought that even in manufacturing, that is sometimes not necessary. Um, it's overkill. You can do it with a cheaper backyard or sometimes you can just draw, draw it, draw it. Drawings haven't, drawings have not disappeared from automotive or aerospace. For every single plane, they still produce full sets of drawings. For every single car, there's a full set of drawings. Part of it is, is a legal requirement. Um, which isn't going to escape AC. I don't see 2D drawings disappearing, um, but they could be better automated. Nobody in manufacturing spends time laboring over 2D drawings. They are of automatic output. Um, And I, uh, so uh, this this guy called Dale Sinclair, Dale Dale was at AECOM and he's at WSP. And um, we were having a conversation about uh, automation and uh, AECOM, he was, he was literally throwing out Revit and using Inventor instead because he wanted to do one-to-one. He wanted to have extreme detail, and he wanted to hand it back, handle that onto the people who were fabricating it. And I think he's kind of taken that mentality with him when he went to DWSP as well. And so I think you are got to find more architects, or well, some architectural firms, more engineering-based architects than architects with a big A. Um, opting to use manufacturing CAD tools because their output, as they intend it to be, is, is one-to-one fabrication. Um, and he was telling me that on some projects already, so he's got one architect working on the project, that handling facades and spaces, everyone else on the project's an engineer because the wow. prime directive is fabrication. And you're going to see some of that as well. Um, and, you know, I, as I was saying before with high power and DPR working on that system where they can conceptualize and literally go from concept to one to one fabrication by replacing just like quickly drawn dumb walls with, uh, whatever, uh, uh, real world objects they've got in their, in their, uh, library. That's, that's, uh, these construction firms are going to, compete on on a number of projects that they won't have to hire architectural firms. They'll have a few in-house architects to take care of the niceties to make sure that the building looks vaguely uh, okay. Um, but it's really all about how quickly can they get it up, how cheaply can they fabricate it, um, how can they sequence it so it arrives on site, um, how they can beat their contracts so that they don't get uh, penalised. Um, this is this is another thing that's going to come to the market, and those buildings are as as I was told with the bread and butter of most signature architects. Signature architects are well known for the the individual buildings that you know that have these people's names on it, but um, they do a whole load of relatively uninteresting buildings. Uh, for people who want to have a, a signature architect's name on it, but don't necessarily want to pay the full whack to have Sir Norman Foster's name on it or whatever. Um, so that's that's a challenge for the industry. Um, so, yeah, I think every firm has to start thinking about it. So what are you, what are you seeing in the States? What what kind of changes are you seeing in people's attitudes towards their tool vendors and their tools this do they feel the
0: stagnation this episode is made possible with support from confluence if you've been listening to the troxel podcast you've heard of our next sponsor for this episode confluence but we have something new to announce confluence is now more than invite only live events it's now also a podcast and it's very cool if i do say so myself because it's a joint collaboration between me here at Troxel and Randall Stevens of Avail, who is the creator of Confluence, as well as having been on this podcast a couple of times talking about the AEC tech industry that we all love. So who's the show for? Well, have you ever written software? Or wondered why the software you use works the way it does? Or want to find out how the people who make the software in our industry do their work? Then this is the show for you. I like to describe the Confluence podcast as the director's commentary track for AEC industry software, because in each episode, we go behind the scenes of AEC software development and talk directly with the developer to dissect a feature and their workflows and get an inside view of how and why they made the decisions they did while creating the software you use. Randall describes it as the AEC industry software version of the How I Built This podcast, which we are both huge fans of. Confluence is a visual show in which our guests show their work. We think you're really going to like it, and we already have a few episodes out for you to watch. You can find it on YouTube and Spotify right now. Just search for Confluence Podcast on those platforms, or click the direct links I've put in the show notes for this episode. Go check it out, and please subscribe. No, really. Just just go check it out and subscribe right now. This episode will still be here when you get back. My thanks to Confluence for supporting this episode of the Troxel podcast. I think, you know, a lot of what I was seeing in the next dev presentations is exactly what we're seeing here. And I think you stated it earlier where there's a hesitancy to say things out loud, but then in the meeting rooms that you're hearing exactly the same things. And I think a lot of firms have always kind of approached this as like, this is just us. We're the only ones seeing this. And then you get into these rooms where there are 50 other firms represented. And it's like everyone's raising their hand and saying the exact same things. They're building the same tools. They have the same complaints. They have the same aspirations. They're, mm-hmm. they're worried about the same problems. And uh, I think that, that it, it's... It's pretty much just industry wide. It's not just lo- location based, like what you're asking about. You know, it's it really is a like kind of a global sense. Is is the sense that I get from all of that? That's interesting because I, I think when when Andrew Anunos got the job,
1: and uh, I've known him for ages since he was in the McCarrick side of things, I knew Hamar very well as well. So I think I had an interview with him probably within a month of him getting the job. And I just said to him Andrew, there's a there's a value problem that that needs addressing because all these architects are paying good money for this product that doesn't have any development velocity and they're deeply frustrated with it um and he said to me he's on the call he said yeah, you can look it up on on a c magazine he said something along the lines of give me a year and uh, I went, okay. So then I think I gave him three years. And then what he actually managed to do was totally denude development of architecture and stick all the money in construction and uh, sort of MEP side of things, um, which wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and obviously you saw all this big money in acquisitions for, uh all the components which became a c c and BIB three sixty and all that uh um, all that kind of stuff and yeah, it just it it compounded a problem that then ignited um with people you who know, yeah fanboys who were really really pissed off that was the that was the kind of bottom line of where it went um and i think that that all these firms were talking to firms in the States and were getting similar kind of feedback as to what they felt, but they were really unwilling to sign the letter and they were really unwilling to uh, raise, raise the issue so much. Um, uh, And when I, I raised it again with uh, Anagnost at AU, I, I just talked to one of their largest customers and they kind of said their EBA agreement was really painful. And I went downstairs to the press conference and I said, Andrew, why are people complaining about their EBA agreements being so expensive? And it was the time of Trump had just got (laughs) in and he turned to me and went false news. But he was doing it in a joking way. I know he wasn't doing it uh, for anything else. And I had a meeting with him afterwards and I actually do believe he said, he said, no one says that to me when I go to I any, any of these firms. It. And I said, I completely believe you because you are the head of all this and these people want a good political relationship with you. They want to, they want to get their deals. They want to get there and they're not going to, um, specifically, you know, torpedo that if they, if they've already got, you know, they, these people have had years of discounts. Years and years of discounts, and they don't want to lose those and special deals and whatever for, oh, yeah, you could you can run maybe that old version of software, don't tell anybody. And, um, and I kind of think that, that it really struck them very hard that they didn't realize this was happening. And I spoke to him, the account manager of AECOM, mm. the, the Autodesk account manager, and he had no clue that you know, people were saying this. Uh, but not to him. Um, absolutely. I, I honestly do believe that they were were completely blindsided by it, which is strange. And when you, you've got a hierarchical talk, then you've got this kind of sales group internally who then go through either distribution or direct to resellers. Resellers go on to uh, customers. It's kind of like, you can imagine if there is any kind of like people complaining, there's plenty of points for it to be filtered out before it gets to the top. Uh, um, absolutely, but I know they're they're now particularly aware of the problems that they could have. I just don't know if it's ingrained in the company to yeah, change to that much it, in terms of, because you have, you have, you have shareholders sure. yeah. and, um, you know, the, the one thing I have been very impressed with uh, is the tandem of development. And, and it's not just it's not just I, you know, Digital Twins, I get it. I think a lot of people get it. But Digital Twins, I fear, is really just CAFM market with a better name. And the CAFM market is not very big. And I think all this stuff is being developed to an audience that uh, yeah, I it works in 2D. What's the benefit of a BIM model over the way that we do CFM today? I, I, I have this nagging feeling. Um, but the way that, that, that they set about developing it, I think is exemplary because they realized they needed to get Revit data in a thinner format for post, post use. The first thing they realized is the database of Revit is, is ridiculously. Too, too big for yeah. what they need, so they came up with a new mm-hmm. format that was lightweight, brilliant. Then every month they have uh, engaged customers with this. If they've got a new feature they want to show people, they don't just show it to people, but they have like polls. So people who've actually lit, spent their time invested watching it can, can can give feedback on how features work, features capabilities. If they don't have any new features to show, then they'll have a kind of a, a general conversation presentation piece talking about digital twins or an element of it. But everyone I've sat in on, you can see the progression of this piece of software. And you feel actually part of the development process because you're actually giving feedback. If you could be asked to sit online and have you know, 30 minutes, forty minutes, and I kind of think this is, this is a brilliant way New way to to develop software with this level of ongoing engagement in in our cloud connected world, other than that, somebody being sat in a room somewhere for eighteen months and coming out and going, look what I've done. This this I think Forge has enabled this, and I think the uh, the attitude to development and being open about it, and not fearing showing people yeah. too much, and I think that's been a that's a thing that's probably change for good now is that software developers are being much more in using the tools for the cloud and the web and everything to get early engagement and to be um uh open beforehand none of these software these software developers wouldn't show it to you until they were happy uh with you know phase one or, or whatever it is they've got and we've we're in this new space where uh You can be part of the development and you can keep keep an eye on something you're interested in. And if you are, you you can, I'm sure they've got beta programs uh, on top of this as well going, but it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a new way of software coming to the market. And at the moment, tandem for it was like really bare bones. I mean, the first time I saw it, I thought, is that it? I mean, really, it's like a viewing, a viewing, a really good Revit viewing tool. It's, I don't know how long it's been going, two years. It really has notched up um, a really good level of uh, technology. And I think a lot of this, there was a lot of other work that was being done um, in in Switzerland by one of the developers, and they've finally t- taken that technology and they could fold it in so they they could make really big jumps because they had all this stuff, years of development work. So I kind of think that, yeah the, the of doesn't have to look too far if he wants to try and find a new, a, a better way of software development. It's right there, uh, yeah. in a yeah, it's there, and I think uh, Bob Gray has done a great job of uh, of showing of showing how software can be developed now with these so, kind of fundamental platforms that um, that everybody's using. Um, but yeah, digital twin—that's kind of about like the big. It's the thing that Bentley are trying to um Bentley's biggest element is this market, but they, they play to these huge five hundred Fortune five hundred companies that you know they, they do have oil people, they do have Army Corps of Engineers, they do have really big players, and I think that it makes more sense to a shell or or, or whoever to manage all these different facilities. Still, just don't, I just don't know where that market is for that, that entry yeah. point. Um, if you are really into BIM and you understand BIM and you think, this is fantastic, we can leverage it. Uh, there's, there's a brilliant um, company in the UK called Space, which are in Architects. They have software developers. They've got it called TwinView, which is a really good Revit uh, facilities management tool. And... Just listening to them, how they've had to try and sell it, And you you think that that, that you'd be that it'd be a no brainer because that you know, we believe we believe in digital twins, and they had to go down to London and they would had to find financial institutions who owned lots of buildings, yes. and they were very interested right. in it because yes. they were commoditizing those buildings as shares or stocks or an equity investment, and they. For some FTC F, uh, financial rule, they had to prove those buildings were being run incredibly well, super um, efficient, so, so that they could qualify for some kind of uh, you know, green investment. That is a failure of digital twins. If it's come down to that, are the people who get it and want to buy it, it shows you there is a, there is a disconnect between the actual Proposed users and the people selling it. And I, I, had a, one of my speakers, Sarah Surgena, who's, um, who spoke on Next Build and Next Up the following day. She, she said it, she worked for a couple uh, of IES and she said they were finding exactly the same. The people who get it are financial institutions. There's a huge market out there that is just not ready. Right. doesn't understand right. what on earth right. is doing i find that kind of disappointing um
0: well and the people who are buying yeah, buildings so, and building buildings you know the owners aren't often from an architectural standpoint it's just what's the first cost they don't they they don't even have a budget for maintenance a lot of times let alone a full on savvy technically savvy facilities maintenance group that is going to do pro- the the types of things that digital twin is going to enable somebody to do they're not going to be running tests they're not going to be checking every sensor every day they're not looking for ways to optimize their they're they're just trying to get along they're just trying to do the best they can do which is usually like one custodian for an entire campus right so it's a solution looking for a problem still for for a lot of people and to your point it's only for serial builders who are really going to be able to take advantage of it in 2013,
1: 2014, I remember talking to Carl Bass and I said, I asked him, I said, so back in the day um, with AutoCAD and architectural desktop and all that stuff, AutoDesk went out and literally acquired the vertical market best players for, you know, there was one for architecture, there was one for mechanical CAD, there was one for, you know, whatever, process pump, you went and bought them. The one area you didn't buy in was CAFM. There was Arquibus and there were about two or three. And I said, Why didn't you ever buy in CAFM? And he just said, Well, we could never really find the people who had the budget. And the budget they, they did have if we found anyone was very small. And yeah, we was it was just it was just too tough a market to actually it was probably too small for them to bother with. And I said, Well, why are you developing, you know, BIM Digital twin, like, well, it probably wasn't the right. term at the time. And I guess somewhere in the company seems to think that there's a market there and, you know, it's, it's their funeral. They can go off and, and develop it and see if it, you know, they they made a good enough case that, okay, here's the money, go and develop it. And I don't think that was, I think this is waiting for Tandem. Uh, tandem didn't really well. Could have been Tandem, but I don't know. It, I don't know how it's to, to gestate. I think it was. I think they're only working on it sort of from COVID. Always, so this might be something else, but um, and then that was just interesting to think that historically Autodesk didn't see the market, couldn't find the market, and now there's a lot of people talking about it, and they put the money into it. So, and they do have a lot, you know, the people there, loads and loads of questions, really good questions from people on these sessions, uh, you know, making requests for capabilities and stuff. So. I just don't know who they are. Are they facilities managers or are they architects hoping to have another new business of, hey, you know, we've built this building for you. Well, now we can manage your facility or help manage your facilities and you can pay us some money. It seems to make perfect sense, but yeah, it it just hasn't really been... uh, I I get high on the hype, and then I'll go and talk to somebody and just go, well, yeah, no, well, well. I'll, I'll I'll stop pr- promoting it. I have to wait till till there is a really good case yes. for this. Um, but hype cycles are always a problem. And as for um Keith bent me. So uh, with Microstation is the foundation for everything, single thing they do, and then they brought out Microstation J, which was Microstation with Java. And I remember, I remember talking to him and just, um, and I said, So, you know, is this a really big thing? It's like Java going to be huge because he's a programmer. Obviously, he said, like, yeah, 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 it's fantastic. And I said, Well, what happens if the rest of the market doesn't really agree with you? And he goes, Well, we'll just look back behind us after leaving the charge and find ourselves on a route." And, uh, and he, he was Because like, that whole thing didn't really. We always have to be aware that when you speak to people at technology firms who are involved in the technology, when they lead the charge because they think it's a great idea, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right direction to be charging in. You, you're going to leave your people behind. But especially, I think, sort of computer, you know, um, Java, you know, you're talking about um, uh, openness. I mean, the whole industry talked about openness. For had added to an item when none of them were open. It was just really embarrassing. I mean, these things come and go, and they don't, I mean, all of this Windows Objects Web, it was the biggest thing where they went from DOS to Windows. And um, what they ended up doing was with objects was knackering the DWG file. Because you used to, I don't know if you remember, but you used to be able to give someone a DWG and they could always open it. And then when ARX came right. about, the actual uh, intelligence could actually sit somewhere else. So you had just sort of a DWG where there would be either a blank hole where the object was, or after time, they could of fixed it and they created a zombie object. So you had some kind of uh, like geometry you couldn't touch. That was, no, that was created by something you don't know. Um, it just the whole idea of, of having a file format that everyone could can, can see just got absolutely broken apart. So, um, you always have to be very aware that the technology that you're being shown might not necessarily survive impact with reality. So it's always remember, it's re- people always talk about successes of big software that has dominated, but very few people remember the failures. And I'm a massive history fan. And I think it's always important to remember what didn't work uh, as well as the ones that did work because you feel history is, has a tendency to repeat and so does software and business decisions with software. Um, kind of, that's the one thing that I, I kind of, I guess I brings a certain element of negativity because I'm like, Oh, I did that screw up last time. It's that where you were with that? See, yes. because he, yeah, you know, I've been in the market for too long, basically. And this it's, it, it's, I'm always learning. We're always doing that. I, the Autodesk license changes is. A constant learning a opportunity right. to learn, and then to try and find out what customer. What does it mean to every customer? Every customer with a license change, they've got different software. I think I think Aligned even said to the. So he, he he gives a talk every quarter to the Wall Street analysts, and in one of them he said, "Oh yeah, our customers are in license hell, license license hell, or license nightmare, license land, or something like that." Because they all had different software on different they were managing software on different licenses internally. And so how on earth were customers ever supposed to kind of work out what license goes where? And I think the one thing that Autodesk doesn't do very well is management software. I think they they always had problems with document management. Maybe they fix that now in Gun 360. But um the so they, they created some management tools so that you could buy software for more than you had for like a premium license for software tools that help you manage the licenses. But they did such a poor job of it that they ended up withdrawing them or giving them to everybody. And I was talking to one of the letter writers' guys who was just like, you know, the, the pro license. That was one of the big elements of this kind of pro license but it didn't give them what they needed to try and track and trace software licenses to make sure that they couldn't go into non-compliance. And then again, when you go into this whole kind of like single sign-on, you you literally have to have a copy of every software for everybody you've got. That person must sign on on one machine and you can't have another person use that machine to confuse it. So you can fall foul of non-compliance by... Having the wrong person on a machine with a sign in for the or a login for the wrong software license because that machine is named user license. I mean, these kind of things create an awful environment for, for the design IT directors to try and manage, and um, they're spending more time managing those licenses because of the downside of the non-compliance possibilities and. Literally every design IT director I talk to, bar one, has to do billable hours on projects, wow. and so the more they get overloaded yeah. with management of licenses, because your licensing system's crap, but your non-compliance isn't, uh, it's, you know, it's fully on it. Um, yeah, you, you're not really going to be winning yeah. friends over when when they've got that hanging over them. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't really think that uh-huh. it was the one thing that in the original open method that August didn't really address. Um, it wasn't mentioned again. It was brought. I know it's brought up. Um, uh, I think Aaron again was the guy who gave the that was the front to autodesk to Zex to have that discussion. So you can imagine how how that would have gone in terms of logic. Um. Uh, so yeah, I think there's um. It's a it's a complex world that we live in, but I, I think my biggest worry is is that a lot of people don't really realise what's coming. They, I don't blame them because they they spend all their time just getting their job done, trying they to do definitely. their job on their desktop machines, managing the licenses they've got, and change doesn't ha-
0: tend to happen that fast
1: in, in our industry, and it's accelerating
0: yeah i think one of the themes that that i think of is that aec is in chaos and there's a huge wave of chaos that's about to hit and that it's like we can't even get our head above the current chaos water to see (laughs) what's actually coming and uh and so i i wonder how this is going to play out i mean being in the position that you're in kind of on the sidelines looking at all of it all of the landscape it's mm-hmm. never a dull moment right like you're saying there's there's going to be plenty it's... of things to talk about to write about to invite to speak to at the conference oh, yeah. to the issues of the day it is a there's a lot going on so pop some popcorn i mean it's it's interesting for sure
1: i i so, it's like i've never for the last couple of years i've never been at a spare end thinking what well, am i going to stick in the magazine this month is i it's, yeah. so, it's It's the great thing is is having having the resource of being able to speak to these design IT directors and hear directly from them what they they've got literally stuff coming out of them twenty four seven and someone's going to change their business model or implement. I think at one point we had uh, SketchUp and Trimble playing funny buggers with SketchUp licensing costs and changes. And that had massive implications for, you know, it's, it's a, you have a product that literally is on everybody's yep. desktop, and then suddenly it immediately jumps up in price. And by the way, we're switching Stop. off your design server. Yep. What? Um, and then I ring around, and I find, yeah, that's happening. Everywhere. Five or six yep. people. This is a problem. So um, I ring them up, and then we have a conversation with the the VP of AC. We see if they know what they're doing, if is this is this what you intended? Because you know, you've caused people to panic and the first thing they're thinking about is throwing out your product. So what do you want to do? And I just don't this is this this this, this greed that comes I mean I am guessing I'm I'm a pretty bad uh, capitalist is is my bottom line. <laughs> we, I I I don't believe everything should be free. I don't have that mentality, but I don't believe the stock market or shareholders should be the sole beneficiaries of software development. Um, and software companies overestimate the value of their software to their customers frequently. And, um, And this, this is still this thing of I watch one company, this leading company, literally grope its way to to squeeze the lemon harder, which seems like a great idea, and you know uh, I'm sure internally of the company it it goes down well, but it just really doesn't play. I get to hear the people back doesn't play very well. I mean, I had a had a phone had a phone conversation with a head of like pricing modeling. Uh, rang me up from Autodesk desk and we were like having a conversation. He goes, I've got, I've got some great news for the customers. So I'm like, Oh, right, okay. Get my notebook ready. notebook ready. Cause I'm going to you know, absorb whatever is, is going to happen. And the great news was the network licenses were being taken away and you had to move to uh, from perpetual subscription. And it was just like, where where where's the good news in this? This just really just seems right. like pain, pain, right. more pain. Um, there's no way of spinning. Uh, we're going to take more money from mm. our customers for some uh, for something else, you know, for, for no real benefit. And that's why there's a, a lot of people, I think, in this industry could give feedback on licensing models, but I just don't know. If the people on the other end want to hear.
0: Well, and a lot of times they're talking to those middleman, you know, license managing companies, right? And not they, the creator of the software themselves. And, and even if they are, they're talking to somebody in that company who has no say in the whole process. Like you said, there's so many ways, so many places along the line of communications where things tend to fall off the story so that it ne- that message never makes it to where it needs to land.
1: Well, I, I guess in large companies, you might have somebody who's handling
0: that relationship. And I definitely have heard of
1: stories where someone in the company is handling that liaison. They're coming into the next EBA agreement. just says it's 50% more this year. And then that person then goes to the board and says it's 50% more this year. And then they decide uh, how they're going to skewer this idiot they've hired. Um, and, you know, we're side they butter to amount to put a roast them over the flames because that really isn't much of a negotiation. Right. So this this kind of stuff happens in firms where someone's being schmoozed, someone's being kept, you know, being made to made special, but the the term effect is that you start sticking those numbers in a in a spreadsheet for how many copies you've got and you start realizing that, you know, that's that's a lot of money. And um And as I think I said at the start, there's a lot of firms telling me they spend 60 to 70 percent of their entire IT budget currently with one vendor, and that's only increased over the last 10, 15 years. And at some point, it will absorb 100 percent of their IT budget, which means they couldn't even buy a workstation. So it's there. There is a limit. And that there is this other thing that, that people are worried, that people I talk to are worried about, which is when Autodesk, they went from perpetual to subscription. As part of that, they gave you two copies at, uh, at half price for the same as one right. copy of Natural, which was a bloody good deal. And it lasted eight, eight years, which That's is kind of in yeah, the future. Right. Forget, Forget it. Don't it. worry about right. it. Um, a lot of those companies still have people who signed up that deal and they're still in that company and they know that that's not too far in the distance. I think it's like four years away, maybe some of them less. And so they know that they're expecting to see a tsunami of uh, requests for payment for normal because they've used the software and they've enjoyed the the bargain that they had for eight years. But um how about increasing your payments by fifty percent? Which I'm sure they'll come up with some deals at the time, but it's that is a bomb that is is in the system that a lot of large firms are very aware of. Um and they're trying to work out strategies to not be that not be in that 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 receiving end. Um, and some of that might be changing to cheaper 2D drafting tools. Maybe it's, it's taking the rely, maybe having more of the IT in house, so not necessarily relying on their servers to store stuff and those sort kind of kind of things. Revit, I think it's still way too early for anybody to to think about uh, moving off. It's 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 not um, that's just not feasible. And I, I think there's that these these people will know that they've got a problem that they're going to have to deal with, and what can they do about it? Um, and it, it was a genius move. I mean that 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 was out of anything in terms of pricing. It definitely got a lot of people to move from perpetual into subscription. You definitely got a big benefit. I mean, you got twi- Yeah, I think it, it's probably the first time that all that, that customers spend has actually gone down in terms of what they've got for their money, they've actually seen quite a significant increase. But yeah, this is this is all all built in. And you're gonna see competitors trying to utilize that as a sales tactic oh, yeah. Yeah. uh over the next yeah, couple sure. of years as well. Well not not immediately, yeah. but yeah. Is there any other kind of topic areas? I think with the the show itself it really is Starting, I'm uh, starting to th- think about speakers. Um, the structure of Dev, I have to think about a little bit more. One of the things I I kind of threw in is a nice idea, but I I thought worked. So I love Eric De Kaiser. I love um, uh, Moritz Luck. And the idea was that I wanted to have software developers that had succeeded. So oh. these are people who had been there, been through the mill, developed, had mission creep, success, failure, success, sold out, so that we could have people there who were inspirational, but also could share their knowledge of of how they got bitten on the bum uh, through their journey, and also the, the positives and how they worked with uh, you know, money people and all that kind of stuff. And the first one I had out was, was Eric, and he did a great job. I was actually in tears, because... It's it's a bit like the uh, the story from Monty Python where he said, Oh, you know, this castle, I built the first castle, it caught fire, and then I so saw I built it out of stone, it caught fire, fell over, so I built the third one, that caught fire, fell over, exploded, you know. that, So Eric had this kind of story of he created Triformer, he signed a deal with Bentley, Bentley sold it, Bentley were going to buy it. Then he obviously didn't have a great well-written contract with Becky, they walked off with it. So then he started BricsCAD. Uh He then went public, had an IPO. He thought, I mean, the money, I'm brilliant. Then there was a market crash. Then he, the, the company crashed. He was in huge amounts of debt. He had to go into the bank and say, I can't afford to pay this money back. The only way I can is if I start again. Will you back me? And so they backed him. And so he started again. And he had all these people working for him who, you know, th- th- this crew in Britscad, they're like family to him. And that came across in that talk that these people were family and everybody took paid vets, well, whatever, and they helped and they grew it. And eventually, you know, they sold out to Hexagon, and we haven't had a happy ending. But Eric will right. never stop. So he started again. He was never happy that he didn't do the architectural tool that he thinks he Mm -hmm. should have done. So, thus comic starts, and he's loaned his own money to the company, he's not really necessarily in it for his personal gain. He says, "It's it's, my team's. This team's. This this is their company. This is their their opportunity." And what I've seen, they've done a bloody good job of it. But it's it's still uh not, He's refusing to have any investment money, and he's totally bootstrapping it. And so they're going to come out of the two years of development with something they've completely paid for themselves, and then they can go and get maybe some VC money to to crack it up. But that was just—it was just a beautiful story. And the kind of person that has attracted to be in this industry, who you know, every time they get knocked down, gets back up, and just is you know passionate about what he does. And then you had Moritz at the other end of the scale, who, you know, he he had to, he came out of college and, you know, wide eyed, bushy tailed. And then he had to get some investment money. And then they started this uh, company. And eventually, uh, yeah, there were ups and downs. And then eventually they sell out. And so now Moritz is kind of a angel investor in, in our space. Um, and uh, the other thing is the video is not online because, He wasn't particularly kind to some of his investors and he thought that wasn't very (laughs) uh, polite. uh, So uh, that's not available. But um, on the day, I think I'm going to do that again, is have have people who've been in this industry who can share their knowledge and their story. And hopefully, you know, I I think it's it's interesting for me as a journalist. It's interesting for users. It's interesting for developers. VCs probably not so much, but... um, I love some of the people in this industry and they give they they are always for giving and hearing and listening and uh especially to obviously customers. And I think that it's it's only fitting that we can, you know, be be proud of some of this, the software developers that have yeah. come up. You know, even like Jesse Davitt as well as another one who's you know, he's a, obviously probably one of the most famous VCs in the industry, but he did, he, kind of came up, sold his software, went into Autodesk. There's loads of these people that I'd love to to have um, to share their experiences and put some warning signs. Yeah, right? Um, I, I, I've had people contact me who want to talk to these people. Not necessarily they don't want money from them. They don't want that. They just want to get some you know some advice, or they just want to to you know um, have that connection because. People worry so much about when you start a business, and um yeah, it's just and that and that happened to me, you know. So I really wasn't too. I I was working for this company. I was they wanted me to buy. It. I kind of got at staff editor, and I was now I was running it for some retirees, this publishing house, and they said, "No, you, you now need to buy an office for a million quid or whatever," and I was like, "No." Oh. And then I went to see some of my friends in the city, and they just went, you know what? Yeah, well, there's no assets. It's like human beings. There's nothing. Don't even think about it. You're an idiot. And, um, and then I was uh, at, at an event in um, Arizona, and I was talking to Bob McNeil. Um, Bob said, oh, how much do you think you need to start out? I said, oh, I don't know. 300,000, some of like that. Went, yeah, you got it. And I went, what? Uh he went, No, you got it. I thought, yeah we believe in you and you have to pay you their interest pay back when you can. And I didn't take it because it's Bob and I thought, Oh, he's he's a friend but the the actual thing that came out of it was that he gave me enough belief in myself then that if he thinks I can do it, maybe maybe this can be done. And so yeah, you know, Stuff transpired at the other end of it, and we found out a different way of doing it. But it was really, these are the kind of people that are in our industry. There are absolutely gold nuggets. Um, and if I can attract these people to come to this event, the people that I pre qualify and say these people are good people, then you know, it's, it makes the events worth so much more. Um, I mean, like Jake show, Jay, you know, Jay's, Jay's, I've known Jake for decades and he is the wall street analyst who goes to nearly every single event he's the only one who goes to every single event he thoughtfully listens and knows what's going down he's a wealth of information and i couldn't believe that he was wanting to come and like yeah. give a give a, convers- really give a conversation really talk insightful. at my event really and, um, interesting to, to watch he's yeah. super so sharp and then i had i had some people from software firms saying right? Uh, yeah, he just don't want Jay. He's just going to talk about, um, you know, Autodesk and this. And, that. and I said, no, no, no. Jay, Jay's, I've asked Jay some very specific things and he, he's, these are the kind of things he's covered. And there were these people were some of the first people to run up to him after the event and ask him for copies of the slides because he it was, it's like, you know, idiots. So he's, he's, he's a, he's a great, great friend, uh, to have on board. And he, he's very, very closely linked to a lot of these software companies. and He's got some soft power um, to try and make them understand that you might need happy customers, <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, Wall Street
0: soft power is a nice thing to have, um, it turns out. But yeah, um... well, Martin, I I feel like uh, this has been a marathon conversation of about the yeah, state yeah. <laughs> of the industry from an AEC tech perspective, yeah. but but beyond that, and so
1: yeah, yeah. I Honestly, it's been it's, it, these kind of things are great because it, I don't really have a very structured mind. I'm nonlinear, and it's just point me in the right direction. And there's a constant sort of there was. There are all these ideas, but they're not necessarily in any right. particular order. Oh, yeah. And yeah. these things force me to to create a story or to actually connect these pieces together. And um, it's pretty much what I do when I write an article, to be honest. But it's um, uh, some, sometimes I'll just start a take player going and just I'll talk about what it is that I want mm-hmm. to say because sometimes you have to. And the then you then you'll take all that text run. and
0: you put it into chat GPT and you have it write your article. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got that
1: done yet. I do put it into something called alter AI, which thing
0: right. text. Um and
1: Revit always comes out yes. as rabbit. <laughs> it ha- it hasn't really, it hasn't yeah, has not really um... <laughs> But yeah, I I did do one thing. I put a a note I I said write an article in the style of Today from AC Magazine, and I put in the, the URL uh, wow. on why customers aren't happy when license uh, models change. And I did a 500-win article that was nice. pretty good. I find that it, it's normally too
0: positive for my uh, liking, but it actually
1: strips out it's strictly. Well, see, then out. you have
0: to just change the tone. You just say tone a little more negative.
1: Yeah. i <laughs> <laughs> not,
0: more, not more, well, it like, well, there was no positivity in that. I was quite like, <laughs> proud of it. But I, uh, yeah. Well, you're not worried about your job yet.
1: So that's good. Well, I'm very fortunate that I write about things that don't exist yet, or I right. write about things that that aren't in the public domain yet. So yeah, a lot of that stuff that was shown at Dev wasn't right. available. So that's, unless I, AI needs stuff to get trained on, it can't get trained on that's stuff not that's not really yeah. written sure. about yet
0: that's my hope well this has been a fun conversation like i said we've we've gone around the world a few times so i i look forward to to doing it again though i i know you've got your hands full with these conferences and uh, i think though that such important content comes out of those and if i can help keep that momentum going i think that's important so uh happy to do brilliant yeah well i'll I'll definitely
1: keep you up to date because i'm going to I think I'm going to start a bit of a brain's trust to get topic areas, uh, that need to be, have a light shone on them. And I, he, if I don't get them in a dev or build, then it's something that maybe I can write about, but, um, but maybe it could be something that, you know, through your medium, then I don't know how many people you can have on the air, but I think it's always good to have, you know, you, we could do a sort of like a club right. session, have a topic and have. For three or four people, you don't really want any more than that to drill down and, and make it a special right. thing and then go, yeah. go with that. And it'd be great to have people from different continents because that the one thing that is aware I'm aware of is that the different countries have different views. And then you need to find somebody in America who's willing to, yeah, step on a rattlesnake <laughs> right. uh, and say, and say right. some stuff um and they're out there they're all, they're all but
0: they might not necessarily have the blessing That's of right, the board right, is right. Like, well i i appreciate your time this has been fun and uh and i look yeah. forward to another time let's do it again definitely cheers thanks thanks, Evan. thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week find out how you can become a member at trxl.co and i'll talk to you again next week